Hello and welcome to the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as a psychotherapist, hosting this podcast is a natural fit. Every week, I will invite you into my therapy room where I shall be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice, and they will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. At the end of each episode, I will be joined by my two, yes, two psychotherapist daughters who will reveal their thoughts and broader insights about my therapy session. It really is three therapists for the price of one. It's definitely worth a listen. This episode is sponsored by Better Help. Navigating any of life's challenges can make you feel uneasy, whether it's a career change, loss of a loved one, or a new relationship. Our emotions can certainly leave us feeling overwhelmed. As a psychotherapist, I'm all about finding solutions, but it can certainly be tough to work them out on your own. Therapists are trained to help you get to the root of your emotions and can help you build productive coping mechanisms. So if you're thinking of giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's not only affordable, but can be done in the comfort of your own home. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to match with a therapist. If things aren't clicking, you can easily switch to a new therapist anytime. It couldn't be simpler. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash therapyworks. That's betterhelp, B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash therapyworks. So I am delighted to introduce Claire Macbeth to our podcast. She is 52, married with two grown-up children, and she is a carer. Lovely to see you, Claire, and thank you so much for joining me. My first question that I ask anyone on the podcast is, tell me a challenge you are facing or have had to overcome. Uh, my my challenge really was um, in 2003, my son uh, was involved in a very serious road traffic accident. He was knocked over. And so the challenge has been coming to terms with having a um, profoundly disabled child um, and going through into adulthood and ha- what that means to us as a family. I'm so sorry, Claire. I mean, I just can't imagine what that is like from having a really healthy young boy um, who's sort of fully able to someone now who is profoundly disabled. It's like you have to grieve the son you had and learn how to come to terms with the son that you now have. And it sounds like his profound disabilities change every aspect of your life. Yeah, for us, it was he went out, out to school on a normal day. I was expecting him in, you know, as normal from school. And we used to go to a school outside um, the area, so we used to get a bus. And um, we were expecting him in. My my, um, He was going to be cooking tea that night for my daughter. He's going to be, him and my daughter were going to make a pizza together. 
Um, and I got a phone call from someone who was at the accident scene and just said, um, you, Christopher's mum, he's been knocked over. And they did, I didn't know what the extent of the injury was going to be. In my head, it was just going to be a broken arm or a broken leg or, you know, a few bumps and bruises. So I sort of flew around there um, in my dad's car and um, we went round and, um, well, I went round on my own. And he was, I arrived sort of the same time as the ambulance, actually. And as it was quite miraculous. There was a doctor there that had just been on, on call. She'd been out on calls and was just Gosh. returning back to the surgery. She actually looked after me. She'd obviously been looking after Chris until the ambulance arrived. And then she sort of gently moved me away and was speaking to me very calmly whilst they were getting Chris ready to go into the ambulance. And from that point, he never spoke again. I, I've oh never heard goodness. his voice again. I've not, he's not spoken to me. And that's sort of, that's one of the big things that I find really difficult is that when you have a loss where someone's actually died, that's one of the things that I know from experience. You sort of start thinking, do I remember their voice? And it was, he couldn't speak to me. And that was one of the hardest things for us to come to terms with is loss of um, it, like his ability to be able to communicate what, what he wanted. Um, so we had to, we were put in a position where we had to make decisions. I, mean, I could just sort of feel the shock in my body of of never hearing your child's voice again. And it isn't because they've died, because they've been so profoundly injured and that you're left in the position of having to guess. And, and when I've worked with other people who've had similar devastating um, circumstances as, as you, what I've learned from them is they almost grow a kind of third brain where you become Chris, but it's very all-encompassing because you're constantly trying to read his face, his eyes, his movements. Is he in pain? Is he bored? Does he feel lonely? Is he cold? And you're kind of making out the answers. But, but, and because you don't have him to tell you, you're constantly guessing, I guess. Yeah. It's so in the early days, like initially, he was in in a coma. Um, it was it was an induced coma, and um, so apart from his, he had a small fracture on his leg. You wouldn't know that he'd had an injury. And one thing that I sort of wanted to put in, I remember right from the very beginning, um, I, my husband turned up with my with my in laws, and we were put into a um, side room, a family room. And I can remember just looking at my husband and just saying to him, no matter what happens, we have to keep communicating. We just have to keep talking because... To him. To him, you know, and to each other. We have yeah. to be able to communicate because I knew that whatever was going to be the outcome, this is going to have a massive impact on all of us. So he was in hospital for um, seven months. In intensive care. It was an intensive care for a month. And um, we went through some really dark periods where initially they, they just didn't know whether he was going to survive. There was always a threat of death. First, he got pneumonia. They'd put a, a bolt in his head um, to, to check the pressure of the inside his brain, you know, the intracranial pressure. Mm. And that had um, that wasn't in quite correctly and it wasn't measuring. So it was going up to 14 or 15, which they weren't worried about. That's perfectly OK. Um, and then um, this neurosurgeon had come up and done a tweak with it and it was going up to 54, 55. Whoa. It was massive. And they, they were talking about um, brainstem injury and stuff. So we, we knew that I've always been really interested in medical stuff. I sort of knew the language, what was going on. 
and you know we had at times where we we've had to say goodbye to him and thinking that he was going to die you know I, I can remember very clear the, the day that they were going to take him down they didn't even know if they were going to get him to surgery they had to take part of his skull out to give the brain room to swell but on that day so many miracles happened I worked in a catholic school and the priest had turned up um, just at that time. What was your job in the school? I was a teaching support assistant. Um, I used to work with children that just had, um, just learning disabilities, you know, just needed a little bit of a hand up. So the priest turned up and he he sort of spoke with me and he prayed with Chris. And um, I sang to Chris before he went. And I, I used to sing to him, You Are My Sunshine. And I sang that right the way through without any tears. And it just... Like all the nurses were in bits, but it was just that really intimate moment with him. And I just said to him, look, you know, I really want you to come back. But if you if you need to go, then go. Mm-hmm. I, f- I felt that he, I just, I don't know. I just felt that very peaceful about the outcome because I had absolutely no control. No. And that was, yeah, that was really hard. Then he, he came through that. They, they said, to him, said to me that they were going to bring him out of the coma. And that's when it already started, really, because they said he's not in a coma anymore. But to me, he looked like he still was. Yeah. And um, it's that realisation that he's not going to do that movie scene. And suddenly come back. And say, hello, mum, what are you doing here? It was very much, he just didn't do anything at all, really. So it was almost like he died. Yeah. But his body was still working. And, you know, I can hear from what you're saying that it was a miracle that he didn't die in that moment. And I'm guessing that people listening will wonder to themselves, if my own child was that ill, would I want them to live or would I want them to die? Um, I didn't even consider. I wanted him to live. I just wanted my, you know, I always called him my boy, I want my boy back, I wanted my boy back. And um, we had some very serious conversations with doctors Um we had a doctor that used to come in. I used to call, I know it sounds awful now, but we used to call him Dr. Death because I knew he wanted a conversation with me and I knew that it wasn't going to be nice. And um, I used to hear him coming into the ward because he used to have like a clippy shoes. And as he came towards the curtain, I used to nip out the other side. And it was very much, I know now looking back, that it was my brain trying to protect me. I didn't want to hear. I wasn't ready to hear anything that they were going to tell me. Because it was too painful. It, all I could focus on was getting Chris home and just getting him well. Whatever well looks like you wanted him home alive. Yeah. Yeah, because I had no concept of what how disabled he could be and what that would mean for us as a family. And you look back at yourself now at that you in 2003 and what would you say to her now? I think it would be to just keep going. You're, you're doing okay, actually. Yeah. You know, I don't, I wouldn't change. I, I had to go through everything that I went through to get mm. me to where I am today. Um, and it's been a really difficult journey. So we did a lot of rehab with him in the hospital. The hospital's not very far from me, so I look after him all the time. When he was in hospital, I'd stay with him all day. So you gave up your job immediately? Yeah, I couldn't focus. I, I didn't give it up, actually. I was intending to go back initially because we really just didn't know what was going to happen. The nurses would tell me stories about other children that were like Chris and how they suddenly started, like things started to click into place again. So I had this real sense of hope that he would still um, improve, that there would still be some improvement. And there were times when, like, it, it was my birthday when he was in hospital. 
And I'd heard a story about a young girl that on Mother's Day, her mum had come in and she'd spoken for the first time since her brain injury. And so I really, I just thought this was going to happen for me. And, you know, so on my birthday, I would, I, I kept going in the room and then leaving and then coming back in and leaving, waiting for him to say something. Say something. And it was, you know, it was devastating. No one else knew what I was doing. I probably they probably think what she was in and out of the room for. It was all these little things that I was just waiting and looking for signs. Yeah, having hope, I guess. Well, I had a sense that he was there, but he just had he had absolutely no facial expressions whatsoever. His face was very flat, and he has some now, doesn't he? You can read him better now. Yes, yeah. So. Um, we got our first smile just before he left hospital, actually. I said something to him and he and he sort of turned to look at me and I just, it was amazing. I just cried and everyone was crying because, you know, it was that first sign that he was definitely there and he heard what we were saying because we had no clue before that. So whilst he was still in hospital, um, my middle brother, who'd had a lot of uh, mental um, illness problems, he actually took his own life um, oh so it was, it was literally six months after Chris's accident that my brother took yeah. his own life oh my goodness and it was that in my head I had Chris upstairs in the hospital and downstairs I had my brother in the morgue it was it was just such a horrible, horrible oh my time goodness. and for your mum as well for all of yeah you. Um, we'd, we'd lost an I'd lost another brother a few years before that um, when I was 23 my brother was 40 and um, he had actually taken his own life as well so it was very much you know it was yeah. just one thing after it seemed one thing after another yeah huge things and I'm I can't help wondering how come both of your brothers took their own lives and you somehow have survived and are able to really live your life given such a devastating loss as Chris's accident what do you think that is about what do you think you have I just I think I have a great support team around me I didn't I don't think I had a strong faith when I was younger and I don't even really go to church now but I have a real sense of a presence and I absolutely I, I have an absolute belief that whilst Chris was at death's door that he had I, I well, I said that he had gone and sat in the lap of God. So it's like divine intervention. I can't explain how Chris is to, to other people. You have to see him really, but when you're around him, he has such an amazing presence, an aura that even though he doesn't speak, he emits this energy of joy and love, wow. and, and people just fall in love with him wherever he goes. It's it's amazing. And that was one of the things, you know, when he was in hospital, I, I, I used to look at him and, you know, at this time he'd had his, his skull had been put back in and his face was all swollen from surgery. And it was it was just really, he looked really sore and it looked really, un, he, he looked so sad. And and I can remember looking at him and thinking, you know, I, I love you no matter what. You're my son and I will always love you. But how will society accept you? How will other people take to you you know if you can't speak to them if you can't do anything how are we going to get through this and I just I just knew that I loved him no matter what and that's all I could focus on I thought you know whatever happens will be you know um, but as it is he does and, and he has an amazing sense of humor for someone who can't communicate I hear a lot of laughter so what's his position now he's how old 
He's 32. And he's six foot? Yes, he's six foot. He's he's living at home. Yeah. So we we had to move. Um, We were really fortunate in in a sense that because Chris had an accident, we were able to um, claim compensation from um, the the cheque that knocked him over. I never, ever held him accountable. I didn't think. I think, you know, people that drive, we all know how quickly accidents can happen. And um, I never blamed him, and and it felt very uncomfortable um, even thinking about compensation. But it, it was against his insurance company. I didn't feel that it was personal against the man himself that knocked him over. I mean, he was devastated. So um, we were very fortunate that we were able to um, get compensation. But initially, um, Chris went off to Tadworth for rehab. And that was really difficult. He'd been up the road from us. I'd been able to see him every day. And all of a sudden, he was in Surrey. Um, I tried to go back to work. I was finding it very difficult to um, concentrate and deal with what, you know, just what the children needed for me. And I just didn't have it because I couldn't give them, you know, 100% whilst I was there. Your brain was always with Chris, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. And I used to just like, sometimes I would say to my husband, I'm just going to pop out the get some bread or something and the next thing I'm I'm on the M3 M25 and he says you're back at Surrey yeah I'm like, yeah and I'll just go because I just wanted to see him I, I felt okay as long as I could see Chris as long as I could see that he was okay then I felt okay I felt very connected to him and I felt very much from the beginning that I was going to be his voice and I had to speak for him. So having him at home how are you mentally and as a family and your daughter, how are you now all these years later, decades later? I mean, I've had I had quite a bit of therapy. I found the best thing that worked for me was um, EMDR um, because of the trauma. Whenever I drove past the place where Chris had his accident, even sort of 15 years later, I was still having that vision. Flashback. Which was still very, yeah, still very much in my mind. Um, so I had EMDR and, it, and that really made such a difference to me. My daughter, she finds it very difficult. Because she lost some of you, didn't she, when he had his accident, and and her dad. Yeah. Yeah, it was very difficult trying to be mum to both. And I think the thing was that we just tried to keep everything as normal as possible for my daughter, which is impossible with the situation we've been in. So she was actually in her last year at primary school when Chris had his accident. She was just sitting there sats. So she sat them, and she did really well. Not only was she transitioning to a, a secondary school, we were moving because we had to move. We couldn't get Chris into our house that we lived in. Mm. So we had to move. Um, so we were moving away from her friends that she knew and everything she knew, everything that was familiar. So she went through all that as well. You know what I mean? It's a massive loss for her. Oh, yeah. She's found it very difficult. I think it's she's worried about relationships with people because in her experience, obviously because of what happened to my brothers as well, she was very aware of it. And she's like, you know, what if I fall in love with people and they die? They're going to leave me. There's that sort of. And we have, I mean, I have paid for her to see people, but it's very much her own journey now. My daughter's 30, so she was only two years younger than Chris when he has accident. And it's meant she finds it hard to trust. Yeah, she does. Because her her belief system is informed by her experience. And her experiences, you can have wake up and have an ordinary day, go to school. And by the end of the day, there can be a catastrophic accident that completely turns mine and my family's life upside down and that I I have no control over that. No. She's gone from having a sibling that she could argue and fight with and share, you know, 
and talk about things with and and now he's you know he's not there anymore yeah and so you know throughout that period of her being a teenager and stuff we we were very fortunate she could have gone we found that she could have gone one way or the other um yeah she could have gone down the route of getting into trouble and being very off the rails yeah in fact she was obviously overcompensating and didn't want to bring any trouble to our door and that sort of thing so she in a lot of ways didn't go through a normal teenage years you know it was it was very different um and now she's got cousins that she's very close to and they like brothers and sisters and they go out together as brother and sister and friends you know and I think she's very aware and I'm very aware that she hasn't got that with her brother but it sounds like she determined to kind of go forward and make the best of what she had. I mean, I'm sure she's suffering and still is. But, you know, trying to make siblings, you can make your family as well as be born with the family that you have, can't you? And she's making brothers out of her cousins. Like she's given what she has. She's absolutely doing the best she can. I mean, you've talked about a lot of different things. What do you think was the most challenging part of this experience, which has been going on for 19 years? Um, I think it's been the amount of care that Chris needs has meant that, like me and my husband, we had our, we had Chris, I was 19 when I had Chris. Yeah, man. And yeah, and the expectation was at some point in his life, they would get older and go off and me and my husband would have a bit of life to ourselves. And we made the decision right from the very beginning that we wanted Chris to stay with us at home. We we knew that he, he wasn't happy when he's away, you know, so um, we decided that we wanted to keep him home. But that has really impacted us. It's meant that our world has become very small. Care can be unreliable. So we do have care for Chris now at home. I mean, they, we have carers come in. We don't have living carers. We have carers come in. Um, but we've been through periods like during the pandemic and stuff where care has been very unreliable so we've had to pick that up and it's just meant that our world we don't really go out with friends you sort of gradually your friends disappear and it's not because they don't care it's because their lives are moving on Mm. and our life has stayed very much the same you know and Chris Chris is a big young man he's you know he's 32 and despite them saying that he would like lose a lot of weight and stuff he never did he's just a solid young man that you know that used to play rugby and he's not he's I think he's still built for it (laughs) but you know but on the other hand Chris has brought us a lot of joy and we hear him with his carers or you know we're we're down there we've just taken him away on holiday with us and to hear him laughing and just he has the best life he goes out and about. And, you know, his life is very different from what we'd imagined it would be. Of course. And, but, you know, when you when you said in the very beginning about, you know, um, being able to engage without him speaking what, what's wrong with him, you know, Chris communicates so well if he's not happy. If you, they've chosen something for him, like they, they, they will give him choices of what he wants to watch on TV. And if they put on the wrong film, he will let you know. If he's happy, on the other hand, you also know. So it's you can really read his mood, which is an amazing. And the carers know him so well as well to get to know him. Yeah, and I I can hear as you're talking. It's like you both kind of know that your life has been turned upside down, 
and that it isn't by any means the life you expected, but also you're in a kind of bubble that's completely attached to Chris so that your choices and capacities are, are very, very limited. I wonder, do you look at those friends who still really love you, but they are living those lives that you expected to have? And it, Does that bring up, I mean, it, I think it would with me, a lot of resentment or anger or the unfairness of life. What are the difficult feelings that come up when you see people, people's sons the same age as Chris getting married, having kids, having their lives? I, I spent a lot of time being angry and resentful. Yeah. Um, it felt very painful. In the early days, um, Chris's friends used to come and visit. And um, I loved the fact that they wanted to come and visit him. But it was so hard. I used to cry when they left. I couldn't. Yeah. I actually I used to try and avoid. And I, and it used to make me feel bad because I think, oh, they want to see Chris, but I can't bear that they're carrying on as normal. And we're stuck with, you know, being in this place. Um and just seeing, you know, uh, my niece has just had a baby and it's the most wonderful thing. But knowing that Chris, I could imagine him with children and yeah. getting married. and That whole future that you'd expected, it's such, when other people have it, it's so bittersweet, isn't it? Yeah, and, and the level of his disability as well is that, you know, I, I joined, um, I tried going to like places that support people that have had brain injuries and there was never anything for Chris. It was always very much that people had a brain injury, but they could maybe still communicate, they could still walk, maybe needed a bit of extra support. There was very, very few people that ended up so profoundly disabled as Chris. You know, and go and Chris went to a special school. So when I'd go to the school, I, I can remember asking the head teacher, is there anyone here that's had a brain injury that like Chris? And she she said no. She said, unfortunately, most children that are this profoundly disabled is from birth. Um children like Chris that have had that sort of brain injury don't normally survive. And so I just, I always felt like I couldn't connect with a support group in any way because Chris was seemed to be quite unique. And so given the kind of spectrum of devastating things that can happen, even in the domain of brain injuries, that you're at the very bad end of it, what has helped you? How have you stopped yourself becoming resentful and furious and... Or, or are you, you know, what, what has helped you manage all of this? I think my husband, we, we did always communicate. And you met so young. So you've been together since you were like... We were friends before we became like partners. Uh, we used to play together. He lived over the back from me. <laughs> so we've, we've known each other for a lot of years. I can see you light up as you talk about him, even now, all these decades later. Oh, he's, he's just been amazing. I was always very up and down. And he's very calm. He just, nothing really phases him. We just, and he will let me just talk. So I can talk to him about my resentments without feeling. And I always had this thing of, I was resentful at other people that could carry on with their lives. But it's not that I didn't want them to not have that. Life. No, no. But it was the fact that I was going through it. And I didn't, you know, I didn't want to carry that. Sometimes the pain felt too much. It felt overwhelming. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, and the fact that no one else could see that pain because to the outside world... You look fine. But inside, I, you know, I can remember just looking at the window and it's like, how can the world just carry on going the way that it is? And mine has just stopped. So, you know, my husband, my daughter has been great. We, you know, we talk about things. And I've got some amazing friends 
I can it's about communicating and find that if I talk about it I'm not carrying that burden on my own yeah so once once you voiced it and really connected and felt heard and haven't felt judged something releases something kind of opens you up whether it's with your husband or your daughter or a friend that somehow not holding that resentment inside but voicing it and not judging it yourself kind of frees you then to feel a bit clearer. People listening who maybe have a child with a disability, profound disabilities, or healthy lives, if they're listening to your story, what's something that you've learned that you think might be useful for them to know? Um, I think that it's, it's good to let people know how you're feeling, to talk about things. Um, people won't know if you're struggling unless you tell them and that you might need a bit of help that it's okay to have all those feelings of anger resentment questioning you know I I have to question whether we have made the right decision if Chris would have wanted to make the decision if he could have made the decision would he have said no let me go you know but I I felt looking back it was out of my hands and I do again I say you know I have a faith I I do believe that I'm being held and I'm being carried along the way and there's something about that that in some ways is liberating isn't it that when you surrender to a higher power whatever that higher power is and for you it's catholic faith it protects you from kind of self-attack in the way because you're putting your hands up and saying, I'm not in charge. I don't have control. I This isn't my call whether my son should live or die. It's in the hands of a higher power, whatever that higher power is. And that in some way is releasing when you paradoxically recognise what is within your gift and what isn't within your gift. I think we had a lady come running up to us um saying that we should pray for Chris, that he could be healed and all this, you know. Is that quite spooky and annoying? It is, because actually I really believe that um, just because Chris is disabled doesn't mean he has doesn't have value. And actually, if if you believe in, in a higher power or a God or whatever, God doesn't make mistakes. We're all born different. And I don't know, you know, it was an accident that Chris had. You know, he had an accident. He made a decision to cross that road at that time. And he got hit by a car and it was an accident. That wasn't, you know, there wasn't any spite or malice in that. It was like one of those sliding door moments. And he, and you know what? I've been given the strength on a daily basis to get through that. And, you know, I've been very driven. I've always said that I'm, I'm the mouthpiece for Chris and it's a good job. I, you know, I am quite chatty. And also uh, one thing that I will say is that once you can get past that anger, I find that dealing with professionals, I've accomplished a lot more by being kind Mm. and gentle when I'm asking for stuff. Um, There's always this illusion that you have to go in shouting and screaming to get what you want. And my experience has been that we have been really well cared for. Chris has been really well cared for. And a lot of that is because... um, I think it's because of the kindness that comes out of this family. I want to help other people. I have spoken to other mums that are in the early days of going through this with their children. Mm. 
And in that reciprocity with healthcare professionals, I used to work in a paediatric unit supporting families when a child had profound injuries like yours, whether they were born with them or, or from an accident. And one of the big things I did was support them, but also how to support them, how to communicate to families. And the, one of the big messages I led with is that parents know their children best. And so if you can really listen to parents, you can use their knowledge and wisdom and combine it with your medical knowledge and wisdom, and then you can make a really good decision. It sounds like when you communicate really well, they hear you really well, and then Chris gets the best outcome. I have encountered some difficult times in in hospitals, Um, not so much when he was a child, but once he became an adult, he had to go into intensive care. He'd been in an accident, actually. One of the carers had the wheelchair tipped over and it was so he ended up he ended up in intensive care and there was some sort of degree of well we don't know whether you know he should be ventilated and all this sort of stuff basically they were saying that they didn't feel that it was going to be viable but actually another doctor that knows us really well said look Chris has a really good quality of life if he has any chance give it to him and he did oh that sounds so moving yeah but I've made a scrapbook now of Chris and what he does and his life because on black and white I mean doctors see Chris at his very worse when he's really unwell and he's he's sleepy and he's whatever they see him at his worst they're not seeing him and so they read in black and white and it looks really bad he's got quadriplegia um spasticity you know he doesn't communicate he's peg fed he has all these complications but actually when he's well he has a really good quality of life, you know. Um, he's out and about, he goes to see live bands, he goes to the theatre, he does all sorts of... Wow, amazing. That's another big thing, it's, a, it's an element of trust. I have to learn to trust. Um, I used to do all of Chris's care in the wow. early days, apart from his nights, because he has a waking night carer. But it got to the stage where I knew that I wasn't enough for Chris, he needed a life outside. And different relationships. yes. Yeah. Yeah, and now, because we have care in, I can go down and visit him like a friend, you know, like a, a mum would do, you know, I'll go and visit him and just chat. We, we, you know, he lives in our house, but we have sort of like a little bit of separation. But it works well, you know. But I, I've always said that, you know, the doctors are experts in medical care, but I am Chris's expert. Exactly. And the two working together, you get the best outcomes. So do you have a question for me, Claire? I know that you've spoken to so many families and you take on their stories and I just I've I've followed you for a long time Julia and I've read your books and I just I love the way that you are gentle with the way that you speak to people and about people and Mm. um it's it's really given me tips on how how I carry myself around people it really has you're very good at listening and I, I didn't prepare anything for today because I thought Julia would just bring out what she needs <laughs> to do with to bring out what you needed from me. And I know I feel like I've just rambled on a bit, but not at all. I think we've had so many really important aspects of your story, and I think one of the things that is so profound of what you're saying is that we all, who don't have these devastating circumstances, make assumptions about disability about what life can be like and like you say walking down the street nobody would know that you've got a 32 year old son with profound disabilities living in your home and that that is the center of your life but also that you've made it a life 
that is worthwhile and important and meaningful, whilst also suffering. I mean, it has by no means been without huge cost to all of you, including your daughter. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, Chris, because he's, he's not just disabled, he's profoundly disabled. He's in a wheelchair that support. He has to have head supports. And so, you know, his wheelchair's big. Everything with Chris is big. He's not a, a little boy. So, you know, family get-togethers, quite often we can't go, or only one of us can go because we can't get Chris in. We feel very excluded at times. Yeah, that must be very excluding. Like you're somehow different. You're not, well, and you are, is the truth. Yeah, and we've been invited to things. It's, oh, sorry, we haven't, the care's not turned up, we can't come. And, you know, and booking holidays, just going away on holiday, you know, it takes a mammoth effort. We've only been abroad, um, I think, three times now since Chris had his accident. Wow. And that's in 19 years. When I'm not with him, I'm worried. And obviously, because we've had the um, pandemic, that was that was a really scary time, really worried about anyone coming through the door was seen as a p- potential threat. Yeah. And an infection for him could kill him, couldn't it? I lost my mum to COVID um, before the vaccination. So my mum got COVID. I got, I got it from my mum. Luckily, I'd sort of, I'd had, I'd already started to wear a mask when I went down to see Chris. So I was already using PPE and everyone was, if all the staff were. And they've been amazing. Chris has been kept safe. Yeah. So I lost my mum. So, so it was a very real thing to me of what could happen if Chris got COVID. Yeah. That must have been an incredibly difficult time for you because you couldn't go out and, you know, carers getting COVID. So a lot was down to you and then your mum dying it. And also financially, did it affect you? We, we're in a very fortunate position where we don't have a mortgage and um, the compensation that we got enabled us to buy the house that we have, um, which meant that Chris could stay with us. The house that was provided for us initially um, through the council um, meant that we were literally in in each other's pockets. We had one room that, you know, there wasn't even a separate room that we could go into unless we went to our bedroom. So that that was never going to work. Um, so we we live in a house where Chris, like we live in a bungalow and Chris has the whole front of the bungalow. We call it his bachelor pad. <laughs> um, so he has that and we have the back of the house so we have space and we were able to isolate during COVID. And um, whilst me and my husband had COVID, um, Chris was safe. Again, there was another whole system of trying to care Chris needed more support whilst I was trying to grieve for my mum as well, you know, so it was all, so that was another challenge that we could do another podcast. <laughs> I don't think we'll go down there now because it's, it's opening a door. But yeah, it's just, I think that people are more resilient than they realise. I think you don't, people, people have said to me, I don't know how you got through it. I could never do that. How, you know, you do, you do. What else do you do? You can't walk away. Um, many a time I've just sat on the back doorstep and just cried or gone to the woods and shouted it's not fair why us it's you know why me but why not me and it could happen to anyone you know be grateful that if it hasn't and I think that is a, a very profound kind of lasting message is that we are all more resilient than we think we are and rather than railing against the bad things that happen happen to us, you know, saying why me, that it, it, why why not you, but also allow yourself to sit on the doorstep and scream at the sky or whatever it is, and keep going. But also, you smile a lot, so I guess you, your sense of humour has helped you a lot. 
I've come to a place where I've just accepted. I can't. I cannot change my situation. And the more I'm fighting to try and think it into a different way, it was just making me more and more angry and more and more sad. Couldn't change it by thinking about it or, you know, so accepting it. And, you know, and I am in a place now where I accept that Chris is very vulnerable. He's a very vulnerable young man. And we face the fact that, you know, he he potentially is going to die before us. So every day is a blessing. Every day that we have him. This is a blessing, and I, that's all I can do is take one day at a time. I mean, that's a lovely way to end, that every day is a blessing and take one day at a time. Thank you so much, Claire, for being a guest on my podcast, and lovely to meet you. Thank you. So glad to meet you too, Julia. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Oh my goodness, that terrible, devastating, unpredictable thing that you can wake up one morning and everything be fine, and then completely out of the blue, a car accident in the case with her son, Chris, can literally change your life forever, and how that's a lifelong process of adjustment and adaptation. And my goodness, what what an inspiring and difficult story. Yeah, I thought there was some really valuable sort of hard-won uh, lessons that she that she sort of shared with us about surviving something that is such a long journey and as well as a crisis moment. And it really stood out how much partly her, her sort of faith in God allowed her to have hope and believe in the meaning of what was happening. And also her relationship with her husband, that thing of going on a journey with someone and adapting over time. She talked about raging, you know, going to the woods and going like, why me? And then why not me? And uh, raging without judgment, which is sort of different to rumination. You know, it's allowing yourself to feel and then without um, then criticising yourself for feeling it. That can make it easier for feelings to move through. I love that, how allowing rage through your system and out of your system kind of throws it out onto the ground where it does no harm, whereas rumination is when it turns back on you and can feel like self-harm because it just it becomes this awful negative feedback loop that is much harder to weather and live with and contaminates every emotion that we have. Which is incredibly impressive. I think one of my first thoughts was, what would I do if something like that happened to me on top of all these additional really traumatic experiences that she had? And I was thinking, I'm not sure that I would be as wise as she was it's like I had her instincts I think just trended towards wisdom like the first thing she thought of about that communication with her husband mm. I think that was so wise to think in such a kind of high octane situation to kind of already realize that and I also just really loved the personality she described for Chris because I think sort of sometimes we make judgments not intentionally maybe based on someone's disability and we don't look beyond that and so 
I, for me, it was it was really lovely to hear not only about the difficulties of care, but also this is a person and this is what he's like. He's funny and he knows what he wants and he sounds quite sort of stubborn and human. And sort of being able to see the human of him as her son and he's not just a quadriplegic, he's also a human. So that for me was a really lovely thing to hear. Yes, I thought the idea of the scrapbook that she had of everything he gets up to and that making it tangible, that thing of living in a very ableist world where the life is defined around able-bodied people and the assumptions that, like you're saying, that, that people then make about the quality of his life. And then she was like, he has a great life. Look at all these things he does. We grew up with a certain set of assumptions about what is a good quality of life. Someone can be very able-bodied and live a very deadened existence. It's not this assumption that we make about how the quality of someone's life is a very um, complex thing. I think that's such a expanding understanding for all of us is the assumptions we make about being able-bodied or having a disability and the quality of life. And that really did open a new world and understanding for me. I mean, I've worked with many people with children with massive disabilities and somehow I learned it anew from Claire about the joy and the love and the quality of his life, but also recognising that he needed more than her or, you know, to talk about generally for people listening is that we need to respond to the person with their character and their capacities as they are and be open to creating new experiences and not having control and allowing us to change our understanding of ourselves and our response to the other person. And I think that is true of all relationships. I think it's true in our relationship with our children, but I think it's also true in our relationship with our romantic partners, like this idea that there's sort of one person and that, and they're supposed to fill all your buckets, <laughs> as it were. It's such a, a myth. I don't think any one person can fill everything. And that is true whoever you are. You need you need more than one. And that you exist in a, in a system and a family structure. And that was one of the other things that struck me about the conversation is when she was talking about her daughter, that when these events happen, they impact our whole family, friend, ecosystem of people that we live inside. And then that whole system needs to adjust and be recreated around this new normal that you're living in. Um, and I thought she really talked through the kind of ups and downs of that adjustment to your to their family structure and friends that that's happened over time. But we all need a version of that, even if it's different to the one we was before. We need to be part of an interconnected connection of people, not just one-on-one. And I think if your expectation is that you need to get everything from one person, then you are sort of setting that relation up for failure because it's it's not going to work. Mm, absolutely. And I think there's something very liberating in some way, significant in that, in that we can often feel that we are not enough. And that's probably because we are not enough. I am not enough. <laughs> and rather than giving myself a hard time that I'm not enough, or I can't do this, or I can't meet your needs, is recognizing, okay, well, I can't meet your needs. And I'm upset myself. So I need to go and sort myself out and enable you to get your needs met through your best friend or through another person. And I think that 
is such a relief. Mm, yes. And that we all have things that we're better at or worse at, right? Things that we're good at giving and things that we struggle with. I mean, I was thinking that in relation to us three, in the sense that I often feel I need to be able to be more than just a good enough mum, that I should be able to kind of really get things right. And particularly as we're all therapists, that I must get things right. And that it is quite forgiving and a relief to recognise, like I have recently, going to get things wrong and we can still survive and be loving and being wrong is part of being in relationship. Definitely. But I also think those are sort of two separate things because I, th- I think there is the I am going to make mistakes as a parent, as a partner, as a friend, as an, as a human being. And I think the message there is how do, how do I repair from mistakes? And then I think... The other thing is is sort of what we were talking about before around like needing to be everything for any one person and, and that you can't do that. So, I mean, I, I think the other thing that we've been thinking about is the idea that our experience of loss when something really devastating happened is impacted by our past history and our past experiences of loss. And every loss we have, I think, also reminds us of, of previous losses, which makes it harder because it sort of opens up this bigger well of loss and my other thought in relation to that was the unfairness of life I I mean I know that just sounds like a really slightly banal self-evident thing to say but listening to her story you just sort of think like the starkness of how so many things happen to one person like how is that possible to me it reminds me of that thing of surrendering to what is when things happen that feel so unfair and so not our fault or the fault of someone else, but we live the consequences of it, there can be so much resistance. And I know it ha- can be for me. Of, I don't want to accept this as my reality. It's not fair. I shouldn't have to. And that's, you know, like we were saying a bit earlier in the conversation, that tends to go down the road of rumination. Uh, it's not fair. I resist this thing. And we all go through that. It's not something, you know, it's not a bad thing. But at some point, there is a surrendering to what is in order to be able to move on and go it is really unfair and it also just somehow they're letting go and she talks about you know acceptance being a big relief and that that takes a long time that acceptance does not happen overnight that that is a hard road to get to there's a website called the forgiveness project which has the stories of of people who go through that process or or even attempt and haven't necessarily arrived at some complete place of forgiveness but journeys of forgiveness which I think is a really great resource if that's something that you're struggling with. And they do talks and public talks as well that I've been doing there. And they're really moving. And I've on those talks, one of them I listened to was about someone who wasn't able to forgive on that journey as well. How psychologically costly not forgiving is. That you can't make someone forgive or make yourself find a way of accommodating. But when you can, that it is releasing. So, Emma and Soph, I think we have to leave it there. Thank you so much, as ever, for your contribution. And in particular, thank you, Claire, for this extraordinary conversation and her courage in joining us on the podcast. Until next time, thank you. Thank you.